Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump battle over whether Russia uses hacks to influence the American election. And file synchronization and cloud storage provider Dropbox battens down its security hatches. These stories and more coming up on the ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Eric Chabro. We begin today's report on the accusation by the United States intelligence community blaming the Russian government for attempting to interfere in U.S. elections by hacking and leaking documents, specifically the Department of Homeland Security and Office of the Director of National Intelligence cite the recent disclosure of alleged hacked emails on sites like DCLeaks.com and WikiLeaks and by Guccifer 2.0 which have been consistent with the methods and motivations of Russian-directed efforts and are intended to interfere with the U.S. election process. The hack and leaks came up in Sunday's presidential debate between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. The Kremlin, meaning Putin and the Russian government, are directing the attacks, the hacking on American accounts to influence our election. And believe me, they're not doing it to get me elected. But I notice anytime anything wrong happens, they like to say the Russians, the Russians, she doesn't know if it's the Russians doing the hacking. Maybe there is no hacking. Joining me to discuss accusations that Russia is behind the attack on the U.S. electoral system is Data Breach Today executive editor Matt Schwartz. Hi, Matt. Hi, Eric. Donald Trump's suggestion that there might not be any hacking isn't widely accepted by the IT security community, right? The IT security communities, at least in the United States and Canada and Western Europe, seem to be in wide agreement that Russian perpetrated hacking is indeed widespread. In this particular instance, we have the almost unprecedented step of the U.S. government blaming the Russian government directly. But it does square with other things that we've seen, for example, via incident response firms such as CrowdStrike, which is investigating the hack attack against the Democratic National Committee and which has also said that appears to be a Russian group that it believes to be part of the military intelligence agency GRU, which is Russia's. If it is the Russians, are they trying to influence the U.S. elections? That's what the U.S. intelligence community's statement says. It certainly wouldn't be the first time that we've seen this sort of behavior. Here's Jim Lewis an IT security expert from the think tank Center for Strategic and International Studies, speaking with CBS News. It's a great way to cause political chaos. They've done it in the past. They do it domestically. They've done it in other countries. It's a new tool that they use to get political effect, and so far it's been pretty effective. U.S. intelligence say Russians use these tactics in other places. What do they look like? There's been emerging research into what many refer to as a 4D strategy. Now, this is a Kremlin promulgated strategy that's been honed through multiple information warfare campaigns, if you will. And the 4Ds are simple. Dismiss, distort, distract, and dismay. They do exactly what you would think. You dismiss your opponents, you distort the news, you distract from what is the real news, and you dismay your opponents by, for example, assassinating them or doing things that might otherwise cause them to think twice about disseminating the news or the anti-party line that you're not in favor of. Is it working? That is an open question. It's certainly injected an aura of unreality into what, by many accounts, is already a surreal presidential election cycle. How could or should the United States government respond to these attacks if the Russians are behind them? One strategy, of course, is to impose sanctions. Whether that would help is an open question. Certainly, it's been done before. 
doesn't always seem to have a great effect, at least where billionaires and oligarchs might be concerned. But I've heard some chatter that sanctions might not be appropriate in this, in this instance, that what is relatively low-level meddling in the political affairs of another country might not rise to what has historically been the threshold for sanctions. But there are some other potential strategies. Juan Zarate, former Deputy National Security Advisor for Combating Terrorism for George W. Bush, was speaking with NBC News and shared these insights. Now the Russians know that we will confront them on this, and I think it will be even more powerful if we start to act in concert with other nations that have been similarly affected. That doesn't sound more proactive like hacking back. No, I don't think we're talking about a preemptive strike back sort of thing here. There are questions. Obviously, the U.S. government has taken the unprecedented step of naming high-level Russian officials as being involved in this campaign. Already, as we saw with the Sony attacks, information security experts are calling on the government to share what it knows. Attribution is inherently a political process. It's not technological. When a government chooses to blame someone for an attack has largely or perhaps only a political component. It means that diplomatically speaking, we're going to see more diplomacy. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. The file synchronization and cloud storage provider Dropbox is battening down its security hatches. And there's a good reason for the move. ISMG Security and Technology Editor Jeremy Kirk explains. Dropbox was one of many this year that have faced nightmarish news that rumors of a password breach was, in fact, true. It's still unclear how companies including Yahoo, LinkedIn, MySpace, and Twitter were hacked or why the stolen data only circulated more widely several years later. But the revelations have unnerved web services companies and spurred a new urgency around securing passwords. Dropbox's intrusion was isolated to around mid-2012. Rajan Kapoor, senior manager for Trust and Security, says it was generally a very immature time for cloud services. Dropbox specifically has matured our security capabilities tremendously since then. Only four years later did the full scope of Dropbox's breach become clear. 69 million accounts had been stolen. When the breach occurred, Dropbox was transitioning to stronger password security. Passwords can't be stored in plain text, so they're processed using a one-way deterministic algorithm to produce a hash. Analysis of the 2002 breach showed that some of Dropbox's passwords had been hashed with SHA-1, an algorithm that is considered insecure. Other passwords had been hashed with Bcrypt, which is considered a much more secure method. In an effort to restore confidence, Dropbox has taken the fairly unusual step of describing how it now secures passwords. It's a layered onion approach the company hopes will mean that even if it experiences a breach, the information obtained will be useless. It's a complicated recipe. A plain text password is hashed using SHA-512. That result is then run through Bcrypt with the per-user SALT. SALT refers to unique values that are added to a cryptographic output that forces attackers to use more time and computing power to guess what the hash represents. That value is then encrypted with AES-256. The secret key used for the AES-256 encryption, which Dropbox refers to as a pepper, is stored in a separate location. If a password table were leaked, Burr says, the information wouldn't be useful without the pepper. As an additional defensive measure, Dropbox could change the pepper and re-encrypt the hashes, which would block attackers from using the data they obtained. Kapoor explains more. When we rotate the pepper, what will happen is that that resulting encrypted value will change. And if someone tries to log in with an old password that they've decrypted using an old pepper, the encryption value will be different. 
A poor caution that even the steps that Dropbox is taking may not necessarily be enough against determined well-resourced attackers. He says Dropbox will have to continue to mature its capabilities as the threat landscape evolves. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Jeremy Kirk. American One Credit Union is based in Jackson, Michigan, and last week it began blocking, at least temporarily, its 50,000 plus members from using their debit and credit cards at the fast food chain Wendy's. Joining me to discuss this action by American One is Tracy Kitten, Tracy's executive editor of Bank Info Security and CU Info Security. Welcome back, Tracy. Hi, Eric. First off, what led to American One Credit Union's decision to prevent its members from using their charge cards at Wendy's? In January, it came out that Wendy's had suffered a malware attack that infected its point of sale system, which of course led to a breach of a number of debit and credit cards. And ultimately, American One Credit Union, in spite of the fact that Wendy's says it has closed the breach, is still seeing fraudulent transactions affecting its members. And so it doesn't think the breach is closed. In your blog, you describe American One's move as being bold. How so? Well, I think it's an interesting move. For one, denying the transactions or declining the transactions that are attempted at the point of sale isn't going to do anything to prevent fraud. If one of their members goes to a Wendy's and has the card swiped, if the POS system is infected, that card number could still be compromised. But I think it's a bold move because it does send a very strong PR statement that this credit union does not think that Wendy's has adequately secured its system. And so it's saying that it's going to decline all transactions. How much of an impact will American One Credit Union's move have in protecting its members from fraud? It won't really have that much of a direct impact. And and let me explain. If the card is swiped at an infected point of sale, that card number could still be compromised because it's been inserted into the terminal or swiped at the terminal. What's interesting here, though, is that by sending this message, this, this PR message to the community that American One Credit Union does not think that Wendy's is safe, credit union members will probably just get to the point where they don't even go to Wendy's or they don't attempt to use their credit or debit cards at Wendy's. And if that's the case, it could prevent fraud if, in fact, Wendy's has an ongoing breach. What's Wendy's reaction to all this? Wendy's has said that they believe that they've contained the breach. I did reach out to Wendy's in response to this particular credit union's move and did not get a response back. However, I did talk to some industry experts, including former bank CISO David Schroyer, and he believes there could be a chance that Wendy's believes that it's eradicated the malware that led to the breach, but there could still be some doors that were open that weren't closed. That's the ISMG Security Report. Our theme is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Eric Chabro. Catch you next time.